My name is Val Okaru-Baisant. I'm the CEO, General Counsel, Founder, and Social Entrepreneur of Afro-Cosmo Development Impact, LLC, Maryland, USA. I'm also a business and trade professor at Catholic University, Washington, DC. And all the views I've expressed today should not be imputed to any organizations that I'm affiliated with. And I'm very pleased to be here, Evangelist. Thank wow. you for inviting. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, and what, and I, I was looking forward to this, this podcast. It took, it took a while for us to schedule it, but, uh, but I finally got you. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah. Val, according to, to your company's website, Afrocosmo website, uh, you aim to provide quality support that will close inequality gaps, create wealth, improve productivity, and achieve inclusive and sustainable development in African nations. How are you doing that? Good question. We're doing that by providing um, advisory transactions and capacity building support to small female and youth owned uh, small medium enterprises. And I dare say I'll add the M to the small medium, meaning micro, and those are mostly survivalist um, small medium enterprises, female and youth owned. Um, and we provide this within the space of trade, investment, economic development. Economic development broadly defined to include food supply chain and also uh, creative industry and renewable energy. And food supply chain specifically from cradle to grave, meaning small scale female owned farmers. Right now we have some farmers in the fish uh, industry. We also have in strawberry industry in Africa. Now also the African diaspora space. So in other words, you don't have to be uh, an African if you're interested in investing in Africa, we help you do that. You know, transborder trade right, providing advice, you know, to enable um, SMEs to be economically viable and productive. So we have some uh, SMEs in the informal sector helping them to formalize, right? What is an yeah. SME? What are, what are SME? A, a small, medium enterprise, micro, small, medium enterprise. Now, <laughs> a very good question, because the definition of SME in uh, under OECD you know, the Western nations is really different from the African context. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe we'll get to that later, but that has implications for financing opportunities that my client, some of my clients have, like the OECD had their definition. And of course in the West too, um, most of developing uh, a developed country, um, it's by size and a little bit revenue. Size meaning um, um, if you have employees less than 250, now in Africa, um, uh, most countries um, define SMEs by um, also revenue, not just size, right? And we, we have a little bit of a problem there because when you're looking at SMEs and focusing mostly on size, especially from the point of view of those countries, you then you know, limit the possibilities for SMEs in Africa to capitalize on the funding that you're providing, especially if the bar is too high, yeah. right? So, so sometimes because, because, they're requiring- uh, Because their requirement is, uh, uh, because SMEs are defined as 250 or, or less, but whereas in Africa, companies tend to be much smaller. Is that what you're saying? Yes, 
Exactly. Very good. <laughs> the statistic fine. 98% of small medium enterprises in Africa, guess what? They have, <laughs> guess, I, I don't want to put three people. The tight spot. <laughs> they, <laughs> or, 90K, or that's a high figure. Yeah. Most SMEs, 98%, have less than 10 employees. Okay. Only 2% of SMEs have more than 10 employees. That's just basically, you know, a generalization. Of course, the exceptions, you know. Right. When and you think about why is that? Why is that, your, uh, why is that uh, the reality? Is it because they're mostly family-based, uh, family-centered uh, uh, businesses? It's a matter of good question, that too. Uh, but I think it's the capital, the inability to expand. And I don't want to say this, but I have to because I tell my students, you know, I also teach this, you know, I teach business and trade, but I tell them you can never teach three things trust, uh, patience, and risk. Mm -hmm. The problem that Africans and the diaspora have is trusting. I found that through practice and my, you know, for quite a while now with my clients, the inability to scale up. I also worked, um, you know, in M&A, right, mergers acquisitions in this country, you know, helping companies to capitalize on, you know, on their comparative advantages to buy, in other words, acquiring companies to buy target companies that are in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. I always tell my client, you know, and I also teach business formation, right? So how do businesses get from sole proprietorship to becoming, um, you know, like a mega uh, company, uh, like, um, you know, LLC, that's a big company with over 250 or over, well, that's not even big, over how many thousands, like Bill Gates, for instance, that started as a small uh, uh, scale, you know, computer chip whiz in his father's garage. I would call that sole proprietorship, right? right. How do, how do you get there? It's by networking. Your network becomes your net worth and then trust and taking risks, all right? Yeah. And through the process of M&A and consolidation in this country, in the US, I'm also a US citizen, of course, uh -huh. be, besides being a Nigerian citizen, but I've lived here forever. <laughs> forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. You have to comply with certain basic rules to grow and scale up, right? But it just doesn't happen in one day, right? In Africa, it has it has worked in the banking sector. Nigeria has managed to do it. But there's so many different forms of business that enable you to grow and become financially viable. And as a lawyer, this is what we do. We're using law as an instrument of economic development, instrument of business development to scale up. It's sort of a building block. That's what made me what I am today. As the CEO of my company, I'm applying all my experiences to, ooh, this is like a, a what do you call it? An epiphany that I got like, wow, this is the big deal in Africa now. Informal mm -hmm. sector problems with fragility. You have only... Like I said, 98% of businesses have less than 10, only 2% have more than 10 employees. That's a big problem for financing, for access, access to financial capital, right? It's a big deal in Africa, access to markets. Even if you have access to markets, right? If you're a small scale farmer, like some of the farmers, you can't meet demand, buddy. You can't, you have to scale up. You see, China has the labor issue where we talk about 
you know, large economies of scale of employees, you have factories where you can easily have hire people a dollar, two dollar a day. I'm not proposing that for Africa, right? Mm -hmm. But they have, they capitalize on large economies of scale. I suggest you pay better, right? But you also introduce mechanisms to encourage businesses to grow. But how do we deal with the trust issue? You know, black folk, I don't know, I'm black too. I mean, Africans, I don't know, we don't seem to, I always, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, but let me keep quiet on that one because I, I feel passionate about that question. No, no, it's, it's okay, but I, I want to, that's, that's one it's of the questions. It's beyond the structural I issues. I face, I'm trying to get my clients, some of my clients to scale up. This is what MA is about. I worked as an MA attorney for years, you know, defending acquiring companies that were acquiring target companies, be it in the oil industry, be it in the tech industry, right? We know that Bill Gates was there sometimes when it's not good to do it. If Bill Gates had acquired other micro, uh, other uh, companies in the, you know, chip and computer uh, tech industry, we wouldn't have um, Steve Jobs. Remember Macintosh? Remember he was trying to, and you know, this was all before the FTC deal, the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice. They look at market share, they look at market power, they're rules of the game, right? There's nothing wrong with merging and getting bigger. When you scale up, it helps you to become more economically viable because you capitalize on each other's advantage. So a small scale farmer, who has an, you know, who's doing whatever they're doing, they want to shift to agribusiness. They only have five employees, for instance, 10 acreage. They have a request under AGOA, US AGOA, to supply spice, the, you know, strawberries or spices or whatever. They can't meet demand with five people. Come on now, there's a problem of scaling up. It's a serious, I have six, uh, what I call the six deadly sins of the, a small scale. Um, farmers that need to be overcome, right? Besides the financial capital and human capital, scaling up and access to information gaps and all that. These are the things we do, my company does, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the way that it works though, is that you're approached by a client in the US because they want to expand by investing in Africa. And by investing, we mean either uh, access uh, small scale farmers, or, or small-scale producers, or acquire already existing businesses. Is that how it works? Your clients how are basically works. American uh, American companies who want to expand in Africa. Good question. They're both sides of the aisle. Because um, let me put it this way: I'm I'm a licensed U.S. attorney. I'm also licensed in Africa, in Nigeria, right? Uh, licensed attorney. And uh, we work in the policy area. We do advisory within the framework of advisory. Uh, you know, we help them with just, you know, like now, one of the things we did with clients was to help them with uh, grants that came up, grant and uh, loan financing. I made it available to my clients in the creative industry, also in the farming industry. They need help with figuring out what the implications are for them with filling out, you know, the completing the forms, you know, whatever it is in terms of transactional aspects, right? We also do capacity building. So like if a client is interested in investing in, in, in Africa, 
we can help them in the food supply chain, meaning agriculture sector from cradle to grave, and also in creative industry. We have, for instance, a, a client now who's in the renewable energy. We've mm -hmm. had him for a while. It takes, a, that's another thing. Trust is so important, but also patience is very important in this business because it takes a while to build trust with your client. It also takes a while to also help your client because things don't happen real fast, right? Good things come slow, but easy and you know stable and that's how to build economic sustainable development through time it's not quick fix right so we've had this client in the renewable industry for confidentiality i won't mention names but he um he's a veterinarian owns like three clinics here he's franco african but he's also american and he's interested in providing solid waste to energy to his country his or country of origin although he's also american right so he, we're helping him with the process not only with the uh, issues of uh, you know transactional negotiations with banks when he's doing his bankability um, you know uh, studies or whatever and looking for viable banks he has like uh, transactional aspects of it they're offering him loans we're helping him review the contracts reading between the lines and all you know helping him with negotiating with the government he currently has an mou will be going with him to the country the francophone country that he'll be traveling to he's already made a lot of trips back and forth helping him with turning the mou into a you know a contract because as you know mous are not binding right so it takes a while to get there with with clients you know to to get to a full you know fledged you know uh, project you know, there's the pre-appraisal phase, appraisal phase, you know, there are all kinds of issues that arise at all phases. So that's what we do. Right? So, and then on the other hand, we also have clients in Africa that are interested in investing in the West. For instance, in the US, especially, we don't deal with England, but we're dealing specifically with US Africa. You know, and within the framework now at AFCFTA, we also have the AGOA, the Africa Growth Opportunity Act, right? So you have some clients who want to expand. They're looking to see, okay, for instance, do uh, you know? Can um, can you help us with uh, shelving of our product? Can you help us with any kind of due diligence? The company in US is interested in a, a joint venture with us. What do we do? How do we negotiate this? You know, what you know, those kind of things, right? And then we're also doing capacity building. Uh, we're in the process of helping um, in the creative industry. Uh, you know, to, to come up with uh, an initiative, a, a project that, uh, or a forum, so to speak, where we bring our, my creative clients um, or my company's creative uh, clients, so to speak, in a, a forum where we have investors uh, discussing with them possibilities of investing and the different options that are available to them, right? Yeah. Um, we would also be looking at capacity building initiatives. We'll be looking at the whole gambit of what they have um, available for, for my clients so that they can become economically viable and productive in the creative industry. Yeah, so, we have a gender and youth focus too. So, because it's so critical for Africa. You know, I, I probably didn't mention statistically, 80% uh, of SMEs, um, SMEs hire 80% of workforce, right? Mm -hmm. And of that 80%, 60% of, those SMEs are female-owned mm -hmm. SMEs, right? And then about 60%, this is not me, this is statistics, World Bank IMF, and about 60% are, of, of course, in the informal sector, 
you have from the food supply chain to a creative industry to you know uh, entertainment in, uh, in industry to um uh, renewable industry right but the women are normally in the informal sector most of the women and services sector right only eight percent of smes are in manufacturing most of the smes in africa are in the services industry that's what a is, big problem what a is big the problem. what is the informal sector very good question informal sector as um <laughs> This is a big problem in most of Africa. The, uh, the small medium enterprises that have not incorporated, they've not registered, okay. they're existing pluralistically with their governments. So what's street the talkers, what's for the, instance, what's the, street uh, talkers. Street talkers, you said? What did you say? Yes. Street, yes. Most of the street talkers, you know, when you visit Africa, ah. and the Middle East, not Southeast, West Africa, you have them on the streets. By the way, they do a lot of transborder trade. Women, more than 79%, at least 79% of transborder trade are done by women. Be it on the Rwanda border with DRC, Nigeria, Benin, they're stuffing their money in their bras, they're walking up and down, crossing borders. The, and this is what we're doing too. the AFCFTA, Africa Continental Free Trade Area that has you know, kicked in, as you know, yeah. 2019. Yeah. It's a big deal in Africa. Informing them, the biggest thing we're doing within the framework for capacity building, it's not the run of the mail capacity building that everybody's doing, right? What we do, we work with my company partners with uh, Squire Pattern Boggs, the partner there and co-chair, Frank Samales is my partner. Mm -hmm. And we, we helping to uh, bridge that information gap, wide gap that has been created by, you know, Africa's now we're being called the, the fourth industrial revolution continent, as you know. But there are a lot of people, especially in the informal sector, the traders have been left behind. But um, His Excellency uh, Mene is doing quite a lot to bring them you know, into the system. In other words, inclusivity. But that's also ties in with capacity building, right? Yeah. Article 3.5 talks about inclusivity. Female-owned SMEs and youth are included there. You know, then Article 27 of the uh, trading services the protocol on uh, trading services also talks about uh, technical assistance and capacity building and women are included within that framework, right? So what we're doing is also making them aware, believe it or not, quite a number of them, I have fish farmers, strawberry farmers, and oh, AFCFT, okay. But some of my, you know, we work with survivalist SMEs and opportunist SMEs. The one I mentioned earlier, who's here, that's in, interested, we've been helping him with, um, you know, in, um, moving ahead his um, plans to uh, provide uh, solid waste to energy to um, to Africa, to two countries in Africa. He's an opportunist SMEs, but the ones that are really hard hit, especially with COVID, are those ones you asked about, the informal SMEs, and some are formalized. Like and these are, these are the survivors. survivors. They're the survivors, as in, as in they're simply trying to make ends meet. Exactly. Right. They are so, the, the the living from the question, hand to mouth. The question That's now, it. the question now is, uh, can you really incorporate these SMEs, the survivalist SMEs, in some kind of a 
well-framed kind of structure which would be appropriate for investing especially when you come for people who come from a foreign country because uh, how, i mean i understand selling something you know uh, and uh, i'm sure there's some kind of production behind it or import illegal or illegal but you cannot argue that that's i mean you can argue that that's not uh, a proper basis for entrepreneurial development so i'm just curious how does uh, afrocosmo um, access or make use i guess of these types of businesses these types of smes how to make them productive right well how do how do you make them how do you uh, i guess economically viable make them, or not not just making them economically viable but you know in order for a, a foreign investor to to put money down and help help a, a business grow uh, they expect something more than a than a stand on a street uh you know if you have a hundred stands selling the same thing or same little thingies uh they are as you called it survivalist businesses they're not investable uh how, no, do, you, how no. do you how do you how do you make them invest how you know what do you do yes. to make these yes. types of businesses yes. investable? good good question yeah the we for us survivalists that's why we divide our clients into survivalists and opportunists the survivalists the needs and the demands of survivalists are different uh, we're not thinking bringing in foreign investors to invest with survivalists necessarily oh, okay. um, the survivalist issue is you know the regulatory creating an enabling and regulatory environment for them to actually want to formalize first it's yeah. a risk for an investor to come in and deal with an informal sector right it's about informing them, believe it or not, their problems are somewhat different, even though they overlap access to, you know, intellectual capital is the one of the information gap question of what are your rights and duties on the AFCFTA? What are your rights and duties over domestic violence, you know, in the area of public interest? Because some of those women that are youth that are crossing borders, they've been raped on their way back. They also don't know what their rights are in terms of customs duties, Right now, there's some products they can easily cross the border and sell that are, they don't have to incur any tariffs, but they don't even know that. They're offering bribes to customs officers. You know what I mean? So I basic and then access to just basic filling out the form, knowing, hey, this is available to you. But formalization is a big deal because if you don't formalize, but what, the question becomes, why would a survivalist SME who doesn't even trust government, they're living from hand to mouth, right? And by the way, most of these uh, survivalist SMEs that are in the streets, they, 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 because of the government had a well, most governments in Africa were well-meaning when they banned them from being street hawkers because of the aesthetic beauty and also their safety. Cars will hit them on the road, blah, blah, blah. However, it continues because they're survivalists, right? They're trying to survive. So when they see police coming, they run away. But the, you know, so the question becomes, why would they want to formalize? So what we do is the IP angle and also create, you know, convincing policymakers through forums and discussions about what is in it for them. It's a quid pro quo, non-zero sum games, mutual gain. For instance, let me give you an example. New York has halal trucks. Mm -hmm. You know, the halal trucks. Yes. Do you live in New York, yes. Evangelos? Yes. There you go. Yes, but guess yeah, what? I, I live did in New my York research and right, on right that. Now, right now, I live in, uh, in Greece for a while. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, 
uh, Suvlaki tracks. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh. there you go. There but you, you know, I did some research on mm -hmm. the halal trucks when I was thinking of my the survivalism. My opportunist clients, by the way, are the ones that were looking at foreign investors and all that to capitalize on joint ventures and all. But our survivalists were trying to move towards a, you know, formalization. But the question becomes, what is out there? Besides the financial, there's also access. The what we provide is the access to that information. For instance, those halal trucks, when you look at the halal trucks, let me tell you the halal truck angle. Mm -hmm. Those trucks pay le much less, a quarter, much less than having a restaurant in New York which is over really? $500,000 just to rent or to own whatever, a restaurant, yes. a real restaurant. Right. You know right. what I mean? Right. Yep, yep. So when you own a halal truck, you're renting the truck, you're renting the sanitary because you have to abide by good, healthy, safe safety standards, right? Yes. Public health and all that, consumer safety standards and that, that, that. So believe it or not, they pay for parking space. They rent that parking space from the city or whatever, right? Yes. They pay for the, you know, so the government, it's a quid pro quo, right? The government yeah. is gaining from them, not overtaxing them because mm -hmm. the government knows that they have something to benefit from. So it's well organized on the, believe it or not, I love those halal trucks. We have, when I was teaching at GW, I used to go, the, I was so excited when they started having some trucks by uh, George Washington in DC, because we, we really had, we have some hot dog trucks when I was at the World Bank, I would come out and you know buy you know whatever if i'm sort of in a hurry right to, yeah i'm i'm, I'm a very excited i'm very excited when i say halal tracks too but for for different reason <laughs> okay what reason are you excited about them for the food you're excited for your research <laughs> <laughs> of course i love the food and it's it's oh, it's, it's hygienic because they're regulated right so mm -hmm. to bring them in you offer them fringe benefits right you yeah. don't charge them that's the whole deal so banning them from being in the streets because, you know, they're by gutter and da, 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 da. You know, when I lived in Nigeria, when I was uh, in law school years ago, I was much, much younger. And, you know, I didn't want to live with my parents. I wanted the freedom. And so, you know, the woman, Nigerian food, Bali, is the equivalent of fast food, like McDonald's. Bali is plantains that you roast. And then the, there's fried akara, which is... Um, beans that they fry and puff puff is like um donuts it's mm -hmm. sort of almost the equivalent of the nigerian or african donut right yes. the woman across from where the hostel was the hostel or dormitory or whatever you want to call it here it would she would sit out in her whatever with her son and she'll be her little baby so to speak she, the baby will probably have a cold she's blowing the nose very unhygienic we yeah. developed immunity, I'm telling you. <laughs> we were going to, on our way to school, right? Yeah. I didn't want to, I kind of was, I don't want to say, I wasn't rebellious. I was a good kid. But as a law student, I was like, oh, no, I want to live in school. And then, you know, I don't want to eat the dorm food, the dormitory food. And most of us would be like, oh, we love that food. She had, and that's what you call in the realm of IP, trade secret. Why can't you register your trade secrets? That's how you have franchises, buddy. And this is what we do. We go around, we talk to, but they're like, oh, really? Her food was so tasty, but I couldn't guarantee that it was hygienic. 
But over the years, I guess we developed immunity. When I visited my dad years ago, when my mom passed, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I should go and buy. Oh, I love those. Da, da, da. He's like, no, you're going to be in hospital. <laughs> <laughs> it's true because the immunity is different now. Yes. You know, I can't go and eat. I can tell you, they were not very hygienic. They had water, they rinsed their hand, but no soap, you know. So, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's a matter of educating them on hygiene, bringing them into the system, formalizing them, but making but, uh, them know let me, something let me ask you this, though. So, how, so, okay, so, uh, so who hires you to do that? They don't hire you. Is it, does the city hire you? Who is your client in that case? To do which one? To provide the education, to provide uh, training. No, no, we seek, we seek grants. We seek oh, grants seek for grants. those power, no, for the opportunist, opportunist SMEs, and we do some as write-off. I see. We write I off see. some, okay. we, yes, yes, because, uh, yeah, we write it off, or we, we do gr through grants, through collaborative. We have a local bank who does microfinance with, um, with a lot of female-owned survivalists that seek microfinancing. So we partner with them, we seek grants and we do this, right? Uh, but the survive, the opportunist ones, they pay me, but I, you know, with COVID, it's sort of reduced, you know? Reduced. That's why we have the social entrepreneurship aspect of it. Because I didn't just, when I say that I, this, I don't want to say it fell on my lap because I'm the CEO of my company, right? So, but it somewhat fell on my lap to the extent that it was a building block Mm -hmm. to the whole you know I talk I tell my students that life is a building block okay mm -hmm. so the whole point of me being a social entrepreneur I guess I've always been when I was working at the World Bank when I was working in the private sector mm -hmm. it's always been in my mind you know to help you know female-owned SMEs to help youth you know in the area of business you know bringing in compassion into the area of for-profit maximize, not so much Friedman's approach to for-profit maximization, but thinking about the bigger picture of stakeholder interest, if you know what I mean, Yes. right? So it's not only about money, you know, it's, it's about, um, you know, gender issues, it's about youth, you know, yes. you know, the bigger stakeholder interest, environmental, consumer safety issues, product quality issues, you see what I mean? Yes, I know. That's what it, and it's funny because I got into, funny in a nice way, I got into business through water. I started my, my endeavor and, you know, at Stanford when I was a doctorate student, mm -hmm. I started in the water sector, right? And the yes. rest is history. And I'm thankful to John Barton, Professor John Barton, and very thankful also to Boss Thompson for sort of inspiring me to get into this area of water as a social good, as a spiritual good, you know, and then I delved further into it in my doctorate, looking at issues of cost recovery. You know, why is there resistance to paying for water? Why are private companies like Sodechi and uh, RWE, Vivendi, I believe was the company at the time, mostly private French companies delving, privatizing, why yeah. are they, you know, because of water scarcity, right? law and economics kicks in, right? My background in law and economics, when you have scarcity, then the value increases, then water becomes a 
traded in the futures market, then you know, private sector wants to be involved and involved in it and commercialize it. How do we then get communities to want to pay user fees for water? Do we sort of look at the infrastructure side of it and convince them they're not paying for the water, but they're paying for the cleaning of the water? You know, we did this at the World Bank. So I delved into the bank and now I looked at the business side. And so I'm more of a balanced kind of business person that looks at, you know, these kind of issues from both sides of the aisle. Well, can we talk about AGOA, which is the African Growth Opportunity Act? How does Afrocosmo uh, deal with AGOA? What exactly do you do in terms of AGOA? Um, Basically, that's a good question. We basically do the same um, advisory, you know, transactions and capacity building support with respect to AGOA. And mostly our clients that are in Africa that don't know about AGOA or they know about AGOA and they want to capitalize on it. By the way, it expires 2025, mm-hmm. right? Can we and talk about so- what, what AGOA is exactly? Yes. Africa Growth Opportunity Act is not a treaty. It's actually a preferential uh, treatment, right? That the US uses to uh, encourage uh, trade uh-huh. between um, the US and Africa, African yeah. countries, right? So what, so so, what is that? So yeah. not every country is eligible for every single um, product, right? Uh-huh. So for instance, you know, with the Trump administration, when Rwanda uh, decided not to import, um, you know, secondhand clothing, from the US because they thought it was sort of, the US was dumping secondhand clothing that was affecting local um, industries in Rwanda, Trump retaliated by also banning importation of of textile from Rwanda, right? So, and now even with Ethiopia, there's that question of using AGOA preferential treatment to, you know, as a punitive measure against uh, Ethiopia because of the current state of affairs there, right? So it's not only a trade tool. I see AGOA as a political tool. It makes sense. I mean, countries have a right to have trade agreements that have political implications, right? That's what it's all about. Look, even with uh, Russia right now, even though we're not talking AGOA, it's not just in Africa that you have these kind of things where you can, although it's not an AGOA kind of arrangement, but they're using imposing economic sanctions. AGOA is not a, you know, it's a good thing, but I'm not saying it's a form of, you know, well, the US uses it as a carrot stick approach. So so the US establishes it. Uh, The the concept is that the African countries, the developing countries will get used to it. uh, And then the US will have a leverage whenever they need to, whatever to 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 uh, to do whatever they they want to impose their will basically by threatening to uh, <laughs> well those are your words right <laughs> out. yeah is, is that what it is I, I wouldn't go that far I think agoa is a good thing to the extent that it's uh, it encourages the free flow of goods and services between the US and African nations okay. right but it's not a treaty. Right. It's it's not a like, you know, like, uh, for instance, the regional, you know, uh, like uh, the um, what is it? NAFTA that the U.S. has. Well, it's it's now a different name. Right. Since Trump, Uh, the three countries, uh, Canada, Mexico and uh, the U.S., neither is it, um, you know, the FTA 
the bilateral trade agreement that uh, the US had with Morocco. You know, Morocco is also an African country. Although people say we just published an article on AFCFTA and FTA, my partner and I, Frank Samolis of Squire, uh, the Kenyan uh, government uh, revenue uh, board asked uh, me to uh, write a paper on AFCFT and FTA, and we did. We published that challenges, opportunities, and all that, and we just uh, pu published it. Uh, it's a paid subscription, which I could share with you at some point. But okay. FTAs, um, Morocco had uh, entered into one with the US uh, over 15 years or so ago, um, but uh, Kenya is in the process of uh, you know entering into an FTA, it's it's stalled since uh, Biden though because Biden is reviewing a lot of things. And as you know, um, Agoa expires twenty twenty five, and uh, uh, we don't even know what's going to happen beyond that because uh, President Biden has not uh, uh, signed the Trade Promotion Authority Act. That has to be for that to then kick in, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that you know what I mean. So yeah. But like I said, AGOA is a good thing because I am a strong believer, obviously, in that trade is a means to uh, wealth creation in Africa and beyond, right? Entrepreneurship and trade, you know, it, it's yeah. they're kind of tied in because when you're a trader, you own your business. Trade doesn't exist independently of companies that are running those trade uh, you know, uh, organizations or whatever it is, or uh, a trade company, you know, everybody is doing some kind of trade. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Either you're selling a service or you're selling a good. Mm -hmm. Even professors are traders for crying out loud. Of course. You know what I mean? Yep. It's for, you know, the FCFTA, the African Continental Free Trade Area, it has a, a you know protocol on services, trading services, protocol on, you know, goods. That's the whole point movement and flow of goods and services, right? And they're planning to open up border, the borders for uh, you know, free flow of services, of peoples, only people who are in tra trading, not just everybody, right? Because mm -hmm. they know the value of, of trade. You know, like if you're a franchise, you want to set it up somewhere else, you're gonna have to you know, incorporate or whatever, you know, but the you know, rules of the game that they have to abide by, right? So, so AGOA, basically, that's what it is, preferential treatment. And um, country, like the US has specifications as to countries that they give those preferential treatments. And when it expires, it's as well so they can exercise their rights to withdraw, you know, that privilege or that uh, preferential treatment, so to speak, to the countries. Like I give the example of uh, Rwanda and also now Ethiopia, yeah. right? So, yeah. so our clients, basically, we give them information if they're interested in capitalizing on Agoa, they have to meet certain standards, right? Um, cytosanitary or sanitary. So when, we, when, we say preferential, when we say preferential treatment in terms of what? How, how is that manifested? Oh, tariffs. No tariffs. Good question. Okay. You know, uh, yes, yes. Duties, import duties that are given you know, uh, sometimes very low to no import duties for certain products that are brought in, you know, say if you're Botswana bringing in meat, you know, but you have to meet those quality product quality standards, of course, mm -hmm. you know, like we have a client now that wants to capitalize on our Goa. And so one of the things, you know, she wants us to do is to help her with shelving. You know, she, she, she's already doing product. This is a, in Africa, right? And she's, it's fruits that she um, uh, packaged fruits and stuff. But then you have to look, okay, are you allowed to do this on the Agoa? 
um, and you know, show proof they're incorporated. We do our due diligence, of course, before we help them with anything. You have show certifications. You know, do you have certifications? You have, you know, in terms of compliance with the, you know, uh, product quality and all that whole thing, right? So if you do, then we then start the process, right? But you have to present, you know, credible documents and all that, right? Before we can jump in, yeah. So yeah. what what well, the benefits of Agoa is the tariffs, you know, uh, very low tariffs, you know, import duties and all, right? So that it's a good thing. It's actually yeah. encouraged. But the thing is, uh, you know, a lot of co um, uh, companies, a lot of SMEs don't even know that about Agoa, and even if they do, they don't know what to do, right? They don't know where to go. They don't know how to. And then the question of scaling up. So a lot of companies don't even if they have, they've been given, they, they have the ability. They don't have the economies of scale, large economies of scale, to be able to produce enough to meet demand. Yeah, right? I was going to say also that uh, Agoa basically has to do with uh, businesses which are large enough to be able to export something to the US, mm -hmm. number one. And secondly, what happened? It basically provides an unfair competitive advantage for, for these companies so that they can grow. But the question is, but it's obviously unsustainable. Uh, there's an endpoint to, to this and, uh, you know, the transition. So I guess it gets tricky when the transition has to be made from, uh, you know, a company which exports with, without tariffs to a company that exports without the Agua, uh, you know, in place. What happens then? Like, what's the what's the plan then? The Agoa is going to stay. I mean, obviously, it expires in 2025, and eventually, it's simply not going to be available. No, okay. it, may, it may be. It may be. They're working on it right now on renewing Agoa. Okay, yeah, but but it's some, but it, but it's unsustainable to to uh, to maintain a competitive advantage based on the on the fact that there are no tariffs. Uh, it's uh, it's, well, low, it's low good... import duties, low import duties. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and you're so... saying comparing them with companies that are coming in with import duties versus companies that are not is what you're saying. It's an unfair. The playing well, field well, is it's not a, level. It's, it's unfair. It's unfair. It's. I'm not saying it's unfair. Uh, I just call it unfair competitive advantage for these African companies for the purpose of allowing them to grow. I get it, and it's great, but there's a there's a almost like a deadline for it. Meaning that uh, it sounds like Agoa is in place to help these companies grow, but they have to grow. The question is, so there have to be other things. There have to, there have to be other um, uh, growth, uh, other approaches in place too. Like the, the you know you can. It's a catch twenty two. I guess, how do you, what else, yeah. what do, okay. So to be more specific, let's, let's take uh, the, the, like the ideals at this point, a, a very good African export company from Africa, uh, a company that produces perhaps something and exports it or simply an export company. Uh, what does that company look like? How big is it and uh, how competitive it is on a playing field, a field that is not affected by Agoa. Let's a good African example. company that exports. 
Yeah. Oh, there are quite a bit. I mean, everybody knows about uh, Dangote. He exports everything, basically. But, you know, he's on the high end. He's one of the wealthiest Black men in, in the world or whatever. You know, you know, Dang, he's a Nigerian, right? Cement, no, no, right? No, no, I don't know. Are you him, talking but, about that? Or I, I'm not sure what your question is. My question is, uh, what is the, the gold standard for, uh, for a company? You know, what are, what are you trying? I guess um, Agoa seems to me like a, like a measure that will allow African companies to grow uh, and be sustainable at some point. What is happening to the, uh, right now along with Agoa? in Africa, what's going on? Like what development- Yes, good question. There, four, there, four, there used to be, I think three hubs to help because the biggest issue for Agoa was access to, well, I think, because I'm a lawyer and I work in the area of business street legal knowledge, right? Information okay. gaps, intellectual capital. Because, you know, there's the finance, there's a scaling up aspect, which we discussed earlier, but companies that don't, there are companies that are not, in terms of, uh, don't have the um, capacity, in terms of um, human capacity to meet the demands of Agoa, mm -hmm. in terms of market access. Yeah. So, and there is also the issue of information gap. There are three hubs that was uh, in uh, South Africa, in Kenya, and in Ghana, the mm -hmm. USAID hub to provide information to SMEs that, hey, Agoa exists, capitalize on it. They moved the Ghana hub, I believe the last time I checked to Nigeria. Uh -huh. So they're there in Africa. But the question is, do people even know they exist? And yes, people do, or meaning companies, right? And if they do, do they know how to use them and make sure they use their resources? Some of what we do, my company, you asked about us, is to provide that information like we had we run forums, right? My company, I didn't mention that. I want to mention it. That's how we had the one with His Excellency just last week, well, March 25th. At the, we, we had a joint event with uh, H.E. Wamkele, AFCFTA uh, mini, um, uh, Secretary General, H.E. Um, Wamkele, jointly with the uh, um, AU Ambassador to US and Squire Pattenbogs. So what we do, we ran a, we had a forum on food supply chain in 2020, we've had a number of them, but what we do is we bring those stakeholders together. We talk about what their challenges are and educate them as to what, you know, how to, how to solve those problems. And then we follow up with next measures. Like we have some, you know, um, SMEs now that are trying to capitalize on Agoa. Like I mentioned, one of my clients, she's not in that category of not being able to meet demands because she's big, she's gotten a lot of money from a, um, an organization, she has a lot of employees. And, uh, but the question becomes if she can meet demand. Why, where she's lucky is that she has online services where she sells her products online. And she tells me that she's not really keen on, you know, supplying to a lot of people. She wants to establish a store here in the US. Mm -hmm. but she doesn't want to sort of, because she knows she doesn't have that many employees. I think she's an ideal case because she's an SME and she does fruits, dried fruits. And she already has a website in terms of logistics of selling her product, but she wants to have shelving access 
You know what, what they mean by shelving access? In other words, whether it's Walmart or Lotte Mall, she told me to and maybe she wants check to, out. She wants to create a store in the US to sell fruit from Africa? Yes, but she wants to not create a big store because she knows in terms of large economies of scale, she doesn't have that. So she's clever. What we advised her, she can have a just access, shelving. In other words, an existing store yeah. can buy her things to test it out. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's so because she already sells a lot of products online, she knows her limited capacity in terms of scaling up. So she does her stuff online, her fruits, dried fruits. She's gotten a lot of money. She's well connected, right? Yeah. So, but um, so she wants that. So that's a way to deal with the issue of hey, they've requested I, you know, in terms of market access, one thousand, uh, you know, bushels or one thousand packs of, uh, you know, fruits or whatever. And hey, I can't do it. I'm not like in China where they have big factories and da 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 da. So she wants shelving access, right? So through a warehouse, bringing, you know, maybe 50 or so, you know, what she can afford on a regular basis or whatever, slowly before she then expands, hires more people. You know, there's also the tech aspects that people have in terms of technological uh, challenges besides the access to information, but the list goes on. But I, I'm with you. I know what where you are heading with that because you're thinking in terms of, the pra practicalizing the aspirations of Agoa, right? On the ground is what you're saying, right? Yeah. It's okay to want them to do this, but how many companies can actually meet, you know, the demands? Let me say that the good news, you know, Lesotho, textile, you know, Gap, Gap yep. store, you know, the, yes. you know, Lesotho is now a main hub. That's where they, that's where Gap now produce textile. Really? In the, Industry, the small country of Lesotho. Wow. They're the supplier of, of gap materials. That's where the manufacturing industry designs Lesotho. Lesotho years ago had trouble with infrastructure deficiency. And the Chinese um, infiltrate, you know, Chinese is mostly in those places. The Chinese went set up businesses there. So they were replacing local industries. But I think it's been balanced out now. Because even H.E. Mini at the event we had was using that as his case study in talking about how it's really a good thing, right? I mean, it's it's exceptional. Lesotho, that's a good thing for Lesotho, the kingdom of Lesotho in mm -hmm. Africa, yep. you see. So it can happen, you see. But that's not on a small scale. That's not, that's like a large scale kind of operation that of course the government has to be involved to a certain extent in creating a regulatory policy um, enabling environment for foreign investors to come in. So we're looking at a different uh, kind of business structure, right? You know what I mean? So you have the solo, uh, solo proprietorship, you have the LLPs, limited liability uh, partnerships, then you have the limited liability corporations, you have you know, consolidation or mergers acquisitions, you have joint ventures, you have franchising, you know, this is what I was talking when I was talking about the food retailers, informal sector, some of them could then register their trade secret, their food becomes more valuable, then they formalize, then they, you know, sort of like McDonald's, mm -hmm. you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken started in his house, Mrs. Phil started in her house, you know, neighbors came to the window and she was giving them cookies, then she's, oh, very good. She registered it as a straight secret. And then it became more valuable, right? Yes. And then she started, and now it's exported to other countries. You know what I mean? 
I mean, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you this, I don't want to digress, link to Agoa. You know, Teresa Hines, right? The wife of John Kerry. She's yes. from Mozambique. She's originally from Mozambique. Yeah? She has registered, you know, African, I say Nigerian, Ghana, they compete. You guess what Africa is very good at? Jollof rice in the food industry. A lot of street hawkers, women, and, uh, you know, especially the street hawkers, they sell their jollof very delicious. In fact, there's regional competition between West African nations on jollof rice. If you Google it on YouTube, even Caucasians are trying to cook African jollof rice. Mm -hmm. Teresa Hines registered a trade secret. She sells packs of jollof rice dried, you know, all the ingredients mixed together, prepackaged. Africans wow. were going crazy over it. Now, why did she come and do this and do that? Now we said, I said, wait a minute, where were you guys? Yep. <laughs> You, you have to, you know, this is where IP is so critical. When you ask about the survivalist or non-survivalist, whatever it is, IP is critical, be it in the creative industry, the copyright, you know, registering your copyright, be it in technology, patenting it, or be it in the food industry with trade secrets. You register it and then you claim it, right? But you have to have good mechanisms in place to enforce your rights, right? This is how you do it. You know, because then you can form a franchise and then, you know, you can sell your whatever, your trade secret to whoever, you know, the franchisee, you know, you're the holder, the franchisor, you sell it to the franchisee, you know, and you, it, you know, you can retire after so many years and your name goes on like McDonald's, like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, the colonel who started it in his 60s, he's long dead. But you look at, they're all over the place. They're even going to Africa. They've gone to Kuwait now, McDonald's. That's what they eat as delicacy. And people are talking about diabetes and all kinds of right. <laughs> sicknesses that people are having from a lot of, but you know, I'm one for free trade, but we have to be very cautious too when we're doing it, you know? Yeah, so. So uh, you mentioned earlier about the issue of trust in uh, Nigeria, uh, actually in Africa in general. Uh, I was wondering why is there skeptic, so much skepticism in uh, African countries when it comes to trade, when it comes to business? Mm. That's a very good question. It's a million dollar question. Um, you know, this, it's a very good question because trust, when, when we talk about trust really, trust is not a skill. It's a personality or a virtue. Like they say, patience is a virtue. Mm -hmm. I think that, and it's, you know, it's a generalized statement that we're, we're not at all, because like I said, in the banking sector, Nigeria, South Africa, they've moved, and a lot of countries, I mean, Rwanda, Kenya, all over, you have people that are moving forward with building coalitions and, um, you know, consolidating their businesses and all. But culturally, there's also superstition in Africa. I know you say you're from Greece. Greece had the Western Socrates and all, you know, whatever, Pluto. Is it Pluto or Plato? Plato. Plato, Socrates, you know, the gods of the sea, you know, all that kind of stuff. But don't forget, Africa has that social economic norms that impact upon business. Mm -hmm. I talked to a client when I traveled, uh, this was just before COVID 2019, prospective client. I have her picture all over the place. I walked out of my car, I was advising her and da, 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 da. She was selling Bolly, which is plantain, right? 
mm -hmm. uh, roasted. Across the street was a woman selling um, yam or whatever. Across the street on the other left, this was in Lekki, a high yeah. income area of Lagos. I don't know if you've been to Nigeria, but Lekki is sort of uh, on the upper middle. Um, I'm sorry? I have not, no, no. Okay, not. okay. But it, she was a street hawker. Bankers look left and right and believe it or not, they buy her food high level because it's tasty, but they don't want to be seen. You know, it's like driving through McDonald's, but it's, you know, not as hygienic, you know. Okay. But anyway, the other person was selling water. I asked her, I said, you know, you know, I told them, this is one restaurant. You could merge, but you have to register a trade ticket. Where do you begin? She's like, what do you mean? You know, I was speaking broken to her for her to understand. I put them together. And she's, she then tells me, she says, you know, she might put poison in my food. You know, we're competing with each other. They get into this stuff. <laughs> How are they competing with each other? She sells food, the other person sells water. The other person sells water and drink, soft drinks. And the other person, because, you know, survivalists. Yeah. One thing I've realized is that in the survivalist territory, of people who are street hawkers in a survivalist mode, worse than the halal truck people, because a halal truck man has everything. He has water, he has the chicken and the lamb or whatever, you're, you know, the chicken, right? That he's helping you to do the halal chicken thing with the, yep. you know, sandwich. Yep. He has all that for one restaurant. But survivors, if you go back and give them your shirt, you see a person in the street, you say, hey, you know, oh, you can like this shirt, they will sell it. <laughs> because they are not capitalizing on what the demands are. They're capitalizing on what they have right there that they right. can do. Yep. So it's not a matter of, because they don't have ability to acquire water and the whole gambit to set up a restaurant. We're talking the real survivalists. Yes. There's the canteen people who are a little bit higher than them who sell the whole gambit of food, water, whatever, for a whole meal. Mm -hmm. But those ones who are like at the lowest level all over Africa, a lot of them, they are just really living from hand to mouth and convincing them to set up. This is a thing. Some banks are doing cooperatives. They're setting up for a while. This is what the World Bank, you know, different places. They talk about informal sector, trying to help them to formalize. So they get them together. They get the woman who heads the market, you know, the market woman association leader, to set up a cooperative so they can come together and get loans or grants together. The problem I have sometimes with those, it's a good, it's a good thing in a way because you're trying to help them to get structure so they can get some money, you know, or whatever they need to become a little bit more productive or economically viable. But sometimes what you have is that the leader gets it all, and the people who are doing the work, you know, the you know the different. Uh, areas of you know like uh, food retail or whatever don't really benefit as much as the it becomes a cooperative that's so bureaucratic that it's top down and by the time it gets to the actual women that are out there there's nothing left do you know what i mean it's, it becomes hierarchical which is why it's an educational process that's needed to help to fill that information gap to help them to know listen and these are talented people who have good food they cook very well because like i said they cook their food people are eating their food as i stood there i watched her for a few minutes this woman with her body and whatever she was doing people who had suits were buying her food she was stuffing the whatever in her bra with her little girl whatever and the thing about it is that that's her daily bread. What she made that day is what she's going to squander when she gets home and then she goes back again. Yeah. And sometimes people go from one stand to another. This one has the water, that one has this. 
you know, but that's the lowest level of in terms of survivalists. But we have the ones who are surviving, but they have a full restaurant, but they still need good health, safety, consumer uh, and um, labor standards, the whole gambit, because they're, like I said, they're existing pluralistically with government, but then our opportunist clients are better off, but they have other issues that they're facing, which is what you asked about access to, you know, Agoa markets. And now with AFCFTA kicking in, they also want to know what their rights and duties are under that too, you know, and meeting product quality standards is a big deal because sometimes some of our, some companies that want to export don't know the limits of, you know, product quality standards, the threshold that they need to meet. They have to get certification. Some, for instance, uh, this is not my client, but it happened to another client from Africa where they were exporting yams. By the time the yam arrived, it was left at, or at the dock or whatever warehouse for a while, and it was not, a, they didn't allow them to, you know, uh, sell it in the US because it was, it, they checked it out, you know, and it was all rotten. You know, so it's easier to deal with products that are not perishable. This is what I tell them. Mm -hmm. And if it's perishable, then what we're helping our clients with this, I have a, a strawberry farmer right now in, in, in Africa, and I'm trying to help her get financing to not only scale up, to scale up, but also to switch to, to diversify, so to speak, to have agri business. In other words, canning, because she's having logistics problems, with, you know, when she's delivering even locally strawberries to, you know, uh, um, retail stores within uh, the country, her country, she makes wonderful strawberries, big, bold, wonderful, big ones, very fresh. But by the time it gets there, some of it is spoiled, right? So we're thinking, well, I advised her and she was already thinking on board, you know, with canning, but she needs funding to, you know, turn her business or diversify into agri so that she can start canning and selling canned strawberries and strawberry pastes like jelly, like jam, you know, those kind of things. Yes. But she also needs to have, because where she is, there are other farmers, but they're existing pluralistically with each other. So why can't you merge and acquire? And as you said, the trust is, the question is there. You know, there's superstition. Oh, they don't like me. They're gonna put you know, not her. I'm not talking about her, but that's the big picture. She's a she's on board, you know, merging. But you know, people, when you're a small business and you're surviving, I guess it's ingrained in the whole process. But she's not having that outlook of superstition. Or, you know, that's not her reason for not trusting. I think the networks, you know, networks help you build net worth. Africa is very into networks in terms of extended family philanthropy, which, which, you know, Africans socialize a lot and all. But those socializations tend not to turn, not do not always turn into businesses, net worth, unlike the West, that are considered individualistic. Ironically, they're called, oh, they're so individual. But when they go to play golf, right? Mm -hmm. They mean business. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's so interesting. Africans so feel, socialize so a lot. you feel by, uh, by uh, uh, the, the, the fragmentation of the economy is causing a lot of problems in terms of turning the economy to something that would be really working well. Right? And that's what, that's what you're, you're trying to, you're trying to say to people, you know, work together, try to uh, 
to build bigger business, you know, because that's the, that's the answer to to the mess that there is right now. Yes, you can. You know, if Bill Gates remained in his father's garage as a solo practitioner doing his, you know, invention of the software he was doing, you know, the computer chip he did. Do you yeah. think he would? <laughs> yeah. He wouldn't be where he is. I worked yeah. in M and A. We were on. The, I worked with Scadnaps, you know, on the measures that was litigation, you know, compliance with Hatscot Rudino Act before the FT Federal Trade Commission and DOJ, right, the, the uh, Department of Justice. We were representing acquiring companies, acquiring target companies. And we were looking at, you know, communications between them, you know, looking at their emails, you know, because you have to defend this merger acquisition before the DOJ to make sure that, you know, they will not monopolize that market in terms of any anti-competitive behavior, price collusion, possibilities. Do, is this a company that if they buy this company, they will be the solo company producing? We don't want that, right? The FTC doesn't because that would you know, defeat the whole purpose of com comparative advantages and competitiveness that helps consumers to be able to pay less, right, for mm -hmm. goods, you know, which is why Bill Gates didn't succeed in acquiring Macintosh and everybody. Remember when he was trying to, you know, acquire other smaller companies. Mm -hmm. So in a way it's good, but he still grew bigger and bigger. That's mm -hmm. the whole point. If it, and when a company uh, is a target company, oftentimes you find that they're going through maybe, oh, geez, they're going to file bankruptcy. But the IP factor, they have something of value. That's why IP kicks in, it's of value. So that's why a company says, oh, okay, so why don't we talk? They go and play golf, you know, with, you know, yeah. they, you know, all these, you know, they're discussing with each other and they say, okay, we want to buy you, but you don't want to be, in price collusion with other companies saying, hey, we're going to be talking with you to bid this amount for this, to buy this company out. But in the end analysis, the question becomes, okay, the company that's the target company that's going to be bought, they negotiate how many employees are going to be laid off. You know, what, oh, you're the CEO of the company that's the target company. Do you want to join us when we buy you out or that, that, that. That's how companies are growing. You have to have something of value, but to have something of value, you have to know you have something of value and then you register, you formalize, you register in terms of IP, you know, you have a food and, you know, you, you, you know what I mean? Or even franchising. And that's another I do. Thing. I do. So, so, so uh, in terms of, okay. So in terms of industries, what uh, industries in the United States would be possibly interested in uh, entering the Nigerian, let's say, ecosystem, which you're more familiar with, I suppose, um, based on the current condition of the of the economy what is uh, what aspect of the economy is mature enough to allow for foreign investors from the united states to make a serious uh, investment yes and let me say i'm not just familiar with nigeria i work in other parts of africa My, okay. you know we have south africa Africa, Cameroon, Kenya, the whole gambit, right? Okay. So yes, my focus is not Nigeria, it's Africa. Africa, we work with AFCFTA member nations. They're 54. Well, let's, let's talk a little but bit let about, me about say, uh, let me, Nigeria, let me answer because that. They, they, yes. they differ a lot from state to state. So let's, maybe we yes, talk about Nigeria. Nigeria and, I would and... say Agri, Agri, Agri and Automobile. Um, agri auto, in other so words, automobile manufacturing, chain. manufacturing, uh, automobile manufacturing, but, but, you know, this is, 
I'm crossing also because I don't work in automobile, but I will pick automobile because that's what the, uh, the His Excellency is pushing that too because of job creation. But uh, uh, but for Nigeria specifically, energy is big, right? Mm -hmm. The because Nigeria has oil, it's an oil producing country. But you know, by the way, most of Africa now is oil producing. To be honest yeah, with you, yeah. but but food supply chain really basically, you know. And let me tell you that they're already doing it. Because now pizza, is it a pizza hot or, you know, the pizza industry, they're, they're already there. The food supply chain in terms of the franchising that's going on. Also mm -hmm. the chicken, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, is it, uh, which one? Kentucky Fried Chicken is in Nigeria, right? So the food supply chain, it's much easier. You know, in the services industry, you know, it's always, e it's easier to get in. Right, I think yeah, it's not as complicated. But yeah, you're talking trade secret or whatever, but when it's because it's services, but high tech, like the automobile industry is a little bit more, whatever. But guess what? They're going in in masses. But I want to be cautious with that because for those of us who are social entrepreneurs, who are thinking the bigger picture of environmentalism and you know, in, ter in terms of green technology and the future, as you know, EU. Uh, is planning to have, I think, you know, don't quote me on that, but I believe it's have the, uh, the carbon emissions uh, and reach their target by 2030, right? Mm -hmm. So as other countries in the developed world are planning to eliminate carbon emissions, which as you know, is tied in with fuel and oil and gas emissions, which Africa has an abundance, Africa needs to start looking at future, the future in terms of short-term goals and long-term goals. It's all okay for us to continue doing our oil transactions and deals with the West, right? But yeah. we have to also think futuristically on how we phase out, even if it's 2063, Agenda 2063, or whatever we're looking at in terms of, we need to establish that. Nigeria has Climate Change Act, but and that's what they're looking at. But I think, you know, in terms of on a practical level, um, it's something that they're going to be looking at within the next five, six years. They should be looking at, and not just Nigeria alone, but the rest of Africa. But for now, I think they're not really, there's no protocol on product quality and protocol on um, environmental standards. But um, Article 27 of the AFCFTA, which of course Nigeria is also a member of and other African countries, talks about uh, um, or stipulates that um, they will, um, member states will seek uh, technical assistance uh, and capacity building support to improve product quality, right? And uh, all other environmental standards, but there's no protocol on that. They, have, they, they, they haven't, they're thinking of a protocol on uh, that has, to, that concerns uh, female traders, you know, and building capacity and all, but not on that aspect, but yes, it's agric, I think, and uh, maybe the automobile, but energy has always been a big deal in terms of uh, for, for Nigerian, uh, you know, for investors, they, they, they always want to, but I would hope that they'll be thinking renewable energy in addition to the but, good old But when we're talking, but, but what I'm discussing is, okay, so energy means that you extract, um, you extract uh, oil, you extract coal, you extract something, and you ship it to another country. That's what you're referring, right? You're not necessarily referring to refining it. You're not necessarily referring to African companies 
extracting and refining. You're referring to American or other uh, companies extracting the resources and, and shipping them and basically- No, no, uh, no, no. No, no, you, I was, I, I, it depends on, you asked about investors that are interested, what area, right? So I was I saying see. energy, agriculture, automobile. I'm not talking about the extractive. The good old days are going to pass because right now with AFCFTA kicking in January, 2021, and, and it, it became effective, although it's 2020, uh, 2019 that it uh, was, uh, yeah. you know, it came into effect, right? Because of COVID, it was delayed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We didn't kick in the whole point for Africa and for Nigeria futuristically and as we speak and what His Excellency was talking about in uh, the meeting we had from him is that African nations, including Nigeria, should trade in intra-Africa value-added manufactured products. That's what the rules of origin are about. So our clients, we're going to be, you know, we're doing that already, talking to them about what they need to do and what they, you know, planning ahead, both the survivalist ones that I mentioned what we do within the framework of AFCFTA that affects customs and knowing that they don't need to pay duties on this good to the opportunist ones, which we have like the re renewable energy client that's that's African um, American that wants to invest. And then if you want to invest in Africa, you need to be aware that you will, even though you can go to Africa and invest, whatever you produce, if it's not value added, and manufactured within Africa, you're going to pay a higher duty and not get the same preferential treatment as a fellow AFC, um, AFCFTA member nation, a company that is part of, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I want to answer that question within that framework, right? So if you're an investor going to Nigeria and you're interested in investing in the oil sector and you want to produce Sit, you know, because now the plan is to now encourage manufacturing in Africa. Dangote is building a big oil refinery and trying to also turn into, you know, primary pro turn um, um, primary products into finished products. You know, oil can lead to um, a soap. You know, yes, you can exactly. Make soap. That's that's what I'm referring. To. I mean, yes. It's one, so it's one if thing you're if you're going to be doing that, yeah. exactly, cocoa. We have, a, when we had our food supply chain, um, uh, uh, like I mentioned with my, my company, we have forums. We had a luscious chocolate. She uh, was part of our, um, our forum. We also had the guy who's Dundu, who's franchise, one of the first Nigerian-owned franchises. He was schooled here, Chita Generation. That's another thing. They have a big role to play. They go back and they do a lot of good stuff. But she uh, has, from cradle to grave, in the area of social entrepreneurship, she's doing um, cocoa, cocoa to chocolate, mm -hmm. you see? And she uses, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, good technology, you know, that uh, in other words, environmentally sustainable kind of technology that she uses to produce her product, right? From cradle to grief. So in the area of oil too, if, if we're gonna be looking at um, Africa and looking futuristically, the question becomes, at what stage will Africa also be capitalizing on green technology to make, you know, in other words, to boost their foreign exchange? Because as you know, Africans that are wealthy in terms of businesses like Dangote and Co, they derive a lot of wealth from foreign exchange. It might be a good thing for Africa when you think about it, if we're going to regionalize and say, okay, we're going to encourage foreign investments 
but at the same time as, as the countries where the foreign investors are incorporated are phasing out you know, products that emit carbon, they're moving towards zero emissions, right? They don't want cars that are running with oil or fuel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Our plastics, you know, what's going to happen is Africa now going to be trading in just non-environmentally friendly products until they're able to also get there. Yeah. Okay. In which case the demand for foreign exchange will automatically go down because Europe will not be buying, you know, cars. And then the other danger is will that will the environmentally, the non-environmentally friendly products like automobiles that are not electric, you know, like Tesla's uh, electric cars will be too expensive for Africans to, you know, will they be then exporting, dumping cars that are made with fuel and all in Africa. And right now, those automobile companies, believe it or not, are heading to Africa. That's where they're going. And my, I'm concern, saying, my, my concern is that there are a lot of companies which are uh, shipping all the dirty uh, mm -hmm. aspects of their manufacturing from mm -hmm. other manufacturing countries in order to reduce their carbon footprint or whatever yes. to African countries. Um, is there a way to basically uh, reach the, the standards that uh, the, the, the targets uh, of the UN, I suppose, um, considering this situation, considering this, uh, this fact that uh, so many companies are, are shipping all the dirty work to Africa? I wrote about that in, when I was a student at Stanford, uh, controlling the transboundary movement of hazardous waste, the Basel Convention, and then the Bamako Convention about hazardous wastes. Mm -hmm. Remember um, the Italian that uh, shipped, uh, you know, waste and paid Sunday Nana how much measly amount to just put it in there, and they, it's an awareness thing, right? Yeah. The way to do it is a multifaceted approach, not just by looking at what the rules of the game are within countries, because they're all sovereign countries, right? AFCFTA member states, and like I said, there's no protocol right now yeah, on. Yeah. Um, on, uh, on uh, you know, environmental standards mm -hmm. and uh, product safety, mm -hmm. but they did a good job in incorporating technical capacity building provisions. Article 27 of the FCFTA talks about, uh, or stipulates that uh, member nations will, um, you know, um, strengthen uh, uh, the, you know, environmental and product quality standards through um, technical assistance and capacity building. So through FTAs, you know, maybe that, you know, we just wrote a piece I mentioned earlier to you on an article on FTAs and AFCFT. And one of the things that we're looking at or we're proposing, I think my company to governments is that as they um, sort of, as we region Africa regionalizes and in terms of scaling or increasing or strengthening their standards, when you have like FTAs, which are treaties, bilateral treaties with say the US or they have FTAs with European Union, some countries do, you can use that as a means to facilitate or the process of strengthening your capacity, right? Because you'll be forced to have a higher standard with beat product that you're producing. And as Europe is now phasing out, you know, I, meant, I mentioned earlier by 2030, they want to have carbon emissions. Even here where I live in Maryland, some um, counties are now banning plastics. Kenya is ahead, by the way, 
Kenya mm -hmm. with actually they're banning plastics, also Rwanda. So African countries are paying attention. They're There's banning country... what kind of plastics? They're, they're, they're banning burning plastics for, for fuel? No, plastics, even using but... plastics. They don't want pl pl plastic, you know, plastic, because plastic. You mean just plastic bags? Producers. I mean, how can you, how can you yes, plastics, use plastics? Yes. Can... Yeah, because plastics, um, uh, apparently, uh, plastics are big polluters, right? Yes, yes, yes. But um, we're talking about, I guess, uh, straws and uh, cups and, uh, and plastic bags. Well, and things like that. yes. Plastic bags here. Plastic bags here. I know that there's a county, they just use brown bags alone here in Maryland, one of the counties uh, they do. And, and, and in other words, what I'm saying is you're absolutely right. There's a danger, in fact, His Excellency mentioned uh, uh, Mini, Mini of, uh, who's the Secretary General. I asked that question because I moderated and presented and we co-hosted him at uh, the AU mission, just like I mentioned, March 25th. I asked the question about this. And we really, it's not a matter of trying to force countries that they need to. I think that they have to have a short-term plan, strategic plan. It, Rome wasn't built in a day. Europe itself is not trying to phase out today. They're saying yeah. 2030. I think the key for African nations independently is to set up their own strategic plan, right? Yeah. If we're going to be doing oil and trading in oil, of course, as Europe is deciding not to, and we have a automobile industry and these companies are coming in, what kind of contracts are we signing? Are we bringing them in to invest in African um, automobile industry with us through joint ventures, whatever it is? Is it for a short term, on a short term basis, or are we talking 40 years where we're going to be stuck with mm -hmm. this, right? You know what I mean? Yes. So that's the question, read between the lines, right? Nobody says you should ban oil. I mean, because Africa is abundant. And another thing too is lithium. You know, Africa has the answer to the, the alternative uh, uh, energy, <laughs> right? You know that? Yes. Even electric cars. Right, because so of the car, it's a yeah, matter yeah. of strategy. Because, because we, have electric, we have the batteries and whatever is needed to man the cars that we're talking about. So it's a matter of, you know what I mean? Yes. It's 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 common sense, but I don't want to say common sense is not always common. But I think it's common in Africa. It's just that there's just so many things going on at the same time that it's a matter of prioritizing what the you know issues that you want to deal with in the short term are and what they are in in the long term. That's I guess, what it is. I guess the question is, what is the best the the thing that's missing? Uh, so that uh, that prevents Africa from taking full advantage of its own resources. Is it policy? Is it uh, the will? Uh, is it leadership? Is it the lack of trust that you mentioned before? Is it uh, the trauma of the colonial years? What exactly is it? Ooh, did you just mention it all? <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you just mention it all, unless you're saying which one is the worst case scenario of it? I think when you think about it, every country has their own, oh dear, why would Africa not capitalize on its resources? What did they sign, right? I mean, some countries, you know, have signed agreements that date back to God knows when, you know what I mean, where they can't get out of it. That's why you have. I guess. To, you know, I guess. I, I guess what I'm asking. Um, forgive me. I'm driving. I guess what I'm asking is that um, Africa 
is uh, so rich uh, that uh, in, in terms of uh, commodities, in terms of resources, that uh, it could actually possibly dictate even certain uh, conditions um, with, and not necessarily need uh, things like uh, agua or needing to be, and without necessarily needing to uh, the handout by the Europeans or mm -hmm. the Americans or without necessarily uh, expecting them to dictate the, the rules, the conditions, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. There must be something missing within. And we mentioned some of these, which are trust, et cetera. How do you fix that at a large, such a large scale? Uh, there's also, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what the educational levels are in Africa, et cetera, but what are the biggest hurdles uh, to uh, making a transition to an environment which is fertile for development for within? Is it uh, uh, lack of leadership? Is it policy? Or is it the people? Um, and possibly, or is it all three? That's what I'm asking. Like as mm. far as the internal conditions of Africa, what like if you if you were what is hindering development what is hindering right. capitalizing if you were the czar of all countries uh, all african countries and you can create synergistic uh, relationships and solutions or yeah. whatever the structure can... the structures institutional structure the landscape the a global economic landscape the landscape the, 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 the national, global, the whole, some people will tell you it's colonization. I, you know, I'm not one that will hit the nail on one head. So the three things you mentioned, yes, but in order of whatever, you know, when people say leadership, I say, who are leaders? Who are the leaders? Because when you have a democratic system, right? Who are the people, government of the people, for the people, by the people? I give my, you know, this is why I'm reluctant to say leadership because leadership is a reflection of the people who put the mm. leaders there. Yeah. And in Africa, we have what they call a stomach infrastructure. So, I, and stomach infrastructure is about poor people who are online to vote and any politician who gives them rice, a bag of rice or whatever is the one they vote for. Right. So it goes exactly. back to the question of, for me, um, it, it, you know, the economic uh, on that development, Entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship. This is what landed me where I am, you know. Yeah, is, but, is, but uh, because but, I believe but, uh, that when you empower people, yeah, right, then they have the ability to dictate democratization processes. Most people say conflict and leadership, but I think at the heart of it is the people. Okay. Even tribalism, when you talk about the issue of uh, the um, what's going on in Al-Shabaab, Al you know, terrorism, what Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, also linked to climate change issues in um, the northern Nigeria, in northern Nigeria that borders with Cameroon, Chad and Niger, where the Chad has dried up, right? The Chad basin has dried up. There's a lot of you know, in terms of uh, insecurity, human insecurity, food insecurity, joblessness right, right. around there. Okay, so it's it worsens, um, uh, you know, conflict. Okay, and so for me, uh, it's a combination of 
you know, it's institutional. It's an institutional structural problem, broadly defined to include not just um, local, state, regional, but global. It's very, I call it the incestuous relationship of the global and uh, national landscape. Very incestuous. And I, my students always laugh when I use that word because everybody from the monetary system, because the institutional is what it is. So the landscape, the geopolitical, this is all institutional. And that's what I am. I worked as an institution specialist actually when I was at the World Bank. So even talking about the social entrepreneurship, that is why I, I just have that niche, you know, in terms of the business, the field that I'm in and trade and stuff. But basically I believe that the humans are the ones who will have to take charge and it doesn't come from just telling people who don't have any wherewithal, no job, no entrepreneurship, that they should go and blank, 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 go out. And no, no, no. Because you know what? Al Shabaab will always recruit people who are hungry. Boko Haram will always destabilize. A corrupt government will always be in there if people are ignorant, or even if they are not ignorant, they don't have the wherewithal to move. You know, democracy for me. Government of the people for the people by the people is about information flows, but it's also about the power of the people who are involved in that process. It doesn't exist in vacuum from the humans who are there. So you can talk all you want about telling people you have a corrupt government, go and do so, but if they're hungry, they're gonna to defer to whatever is out there. Exactly, them. exactly my point. So it's the people, that's for me. That's why I'm in this business. So it's what's the people. Not? So the people, okay, so the people are hungry and there's so many of them and they're at the most vulnerable position yes. right now in the whole yes. globe. Yes. So how do you get from there where the vast majority of, of uh, the population of African nations is so hungry, as you said, and so much, uh, how do you get from there to it being, uh, a developed country to it to it actually establishing a developed economy it feels to me that maybe we're just kidding ourselves here to a great extent how do we get from there to where they become is uh, for me uh, both education and vocational education which but how ties do you, how in, do you look 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 uh, here here's I guess what i'm saying um, i come from a from a country which you could argue that it's been in the EU for several decades and it's been in NATO for several decades. Um, and it's a European country, et cetera, et cetera. But it has the symptoms of, uh, of, uh, of hunger, okay? Mm, it's a, it's yeah. a country, my, my background is from Greece. So it's mm -hmm. a, the, the symptoms of hunger because it's, uh, it mm -hmm. was a, and kind of is a very poor country. And the, there was a time in, in 20th century history where uh, there were a lot of refugees, et cetera, et cetera. A vast amount of the, uh, of the population were refugees who were people who were just trying to make ends meet for several decades, a couple of generations. You can feel that in the psyche of the people. Uh, it's literally embed embedded. Uh, there was a very small amount of people several decades ago that were like that. You can feel it even mm. today. And I'm not talking about the fact that, some, that uh, people are still hungry, they're not. You can feel it in the, I guess, the fact that the, the attitude is still there. 
uh, it's uh, transgenerational, right? Even though the generation, the current generation of people in their 30s and 40s who are active in business are, have not been hungry in their lives, you can, you can see it that because of previous generations, they have that hunger and they have that mistrust, distrust. And, they, and that's why they maintain very fragmented businesses. That's why they distrust uh, large uh, organizations. They traditionally Greek uh, organizations are very small, et cetera, et cetera. And that has become, and it, there are a lot of issues that come with it. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a tiny country of 10 million people, which is mm -hmm. in the EU right now, which gets all kinds of money from the EU and from all kinds of sources, especially since 2008, to rebuild, which has been uh, considered a developed country for a very long time. When we're talking about Africa as a, you know, it's a continent, several nations, none of which is able to pull each other up because they're all about it. I mean, uh, pretty much around the same level of development. Unlike the situation in the EU where you have, for example, nations like France and Germany pulling the newcomers, you know, like Greece or Slovenia. Or no, Africa has countries that are doing better. Than sure, others. sure. South Africa, I'm sure. I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, Rwanda, South Africa, Rwanda, Nigeria. Right. It depends right, on right. the area. Kenya, the list goes on. There are okay. many countries, even Ghana, you know. Yeah. If, and then Morocco and North Africa, you know, they're doing well in their own ways. And, you sure, know, sure, 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 sure. But what's the, what's the outlook? Like, what's the, what's the, uh, you know, it, it, it almost feels like it's whatever is happening right now is like a tiny drop in the, in the, in the ocean. Like there's no serious development. That's, how, that's what it feels. That's what it sounds to me. Um, I don't want to sound doomsday. I agree that the pace, let me put it this way. Let me tell you this, that I think, I, I think we, we have a missing element, right? When you talk about industrialization, now that we're saying Africa is in its fourth industrial revolution, that Africa is spearheading, is at the frontier of fourth industrial revolution. revolution. And they say that the West, Britain was fast. It moved fast with its industrial revolution. You remember that, right? They industrialized fast. The Greeks, you're known for the thought, you know, the, think, the great thinkers. Your civilization was about the thinking, right? Africa has its own Zimbabwe, the great Zimbabwe, Egypt, you know, the whole gambit, even the great Benin kingdom. But we're talking recent times, so let's forget that because even the wealthiest man, Mansa Musa, was from Mali in Africa. He's still unequal till today. You know that, right? Right. So we're not talking. It's not like Africa. You know, if you don't know, please Google him because he's even wealthier than Absolutely. the wealthiest well, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mansa Musa, right? The Muslim no, man. No, I don't. But I, well, okay. He's know. supposedly still the most wealthy. He's still the wealthiest man that existed in the world till today. He's the gold guy, you know, gold okay. in Africa in the gold days. But anyway, that's not what we're discussing right now. No. So if we're looking at the Industrial Revolution, how we're now fought, just tied in with your question, why are we where we are, right? Or whatever, in terms of pace, which is an issue you've just brought up right now in terms of, you know, yeah. The, the British had their uh, industrialization processes that moved faster. This is not me, this is, you know, fact. 
the Americans, remember, had theirs and it moved pretty fast, right? Yeah. They're talking now about AI and the Asians and they're using, you know, the AI generation and da, 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 da. But let me tell you this. When people say that Africa was not involved in industrializing, I actually challenge that because I think that even though Africa now is being said as, okay, this is an opportunity for them to uh, industrialize, I challenge that. Secondly, I also want to say that not to excuse what we've just discussed about, okay, the people, maybe lazy voter or, you know, go out there and get entrepreneurship, you know, the lazy voter, in other words, they're not participating because they're not really interested. They've been demoralized by the governing structure and that, whatever the case may be. The big picture for me is the reason why Britain, the United Kingdom industrialized fast and the US industrialized fast. You and I know why, right? You know why? Right, the evangelists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why, well, what, they, why? Uh, why they industrialized fast? What, uh, what do you need for industrialization? Uh, huh? uh, oh, 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 yeah. Well, the, yeah, sure, sure, sure. The commodity, Let me the, uh, the resources tell you why. of, uh, right. Uh, Factors well, of production. Let me tell you this, which sure. is what we missed in my response to you. And I think you raised it, you did a good job because when you were then explaining Greece and then you wove in, I then decided to chime in on this aspect, which is so critical. Okay, we're writing a book on some of these issues we're discussing today. So I'm really, I'm somewhat excited about this conversation, but right. factors of production to me, this is my economics, uh, you know, basic economics, factors of production, land, labor, capital, entrepreneurship, right? Okay. Infrastructure. So when you think about these factors that really facilitate, and if you don't have them, forget about it. Mm -hmm. For Europe, when people look at Africa, oh, you know, it has nothing to do with their dumb. They're not dumb people. When you look at Britain, when Britain was industrializing, what did they do? They used free labor, free. The, so two issues, the financial and human capital was free. They didn't have to borrow money from anybody because they got these slaves, took them to the Caribbean plantation and used them and worked them like beasts of burden. Mm -hmm. So you had the two very critical aspects of factors of production to develop that were just given freely. They got it free. So why wouldn't, no, they be, no, 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 why no. wouldn't it be fast? The same no, with the uh, US. Okay. So I, I Africa now has yeah. a situation where when they're developing, that's why I told you that the reason for where Africa is, is not just at the local national state level, but the global landscape. Okay. And there's something to say about um, isolationist times when people are developing, they go, they bring humans. Mm -hmm. The U.S. did the same. The U.S. had slaves that built this country. In fact, I apologize to my slave uh, sisters and brothers because I came to this country. I wasn't born here at the Juneteenth that uh, President Biden pronounced this year, Juneteenth, mm -hmm. uh, you know, last year actually. Right. So I did a formal apology because I said the Africans that sold you, da, 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 da. So you have free labor, you have free fund, but guess what's happening with Africa's turn? I'm not suggesting Africa go and enslave. Who are they going to enslave? Slavery is banned. Guess what the British did? They banned slavery after they used slaves because they, they used slaves for free. And they told the abolitionist movement kicked in. They told the Americans, oh, this is a very moral thing you're doing. Excuse me, excuse me, Val. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because what I'm talking about 
is the fact that uh, right now the hurdles are so immense. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Which, right. uh, and that seems that unless uh, there, uh, unless immense momentum is developed, Africa is simply not gonna be able to catch on to the developing economy of the rest of, of the world and become competitive enough on time for it to be relevant. Um, because, you know, what you're suggesting perhaps is that the fourth industrialization may need some extra time to take place. Uh, yes, but uh, uh, the- uh, No, it doesn't. It's already kicked in. No, I mean, but, I mean, but I mean, it's I mean, not, I mean, I mean fast. not to take place, <laughs> but for, for Africa to, to actually take full advantage of it, to, to develop and become and for African nations to become developed, to become developed. That's why we have AFCFTA. Africa wants to do it as fast as they can. I agree with you. They don't have, they can't walk. They have to be running. Okay. Right? So, 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 so let's get to, to the how, meaning that there is the issue of a population which is skeptical of each other. There is the issue of, uh, of education of uh, basic education. Uh, there is the issue of uh, corruption uh, in leadership. There is the issue of lack of will. And there's the issue of corruption from outside uh, by corrupting certain uh, leaders, the very, the rich uh, people, the oligarchy of, of, uh, of African countries, as well as the elected uh, leaders. So how do, you, how do you deal with these factors? Um, because it seems to me that uh, Africa basically once again may end up uh, being the, the worker that makes, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the muscle that makes the rest of the world uh, progress, that allows the rest of the world uh, economy to, to progress once again. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me see. Um... The population of Africa is very, it depends, you know, if, let me, not to disagree, but just to sort of fine tune what you said in terms of my response on basic education, even educated people in the African countries from Rwanda to Nigeria and all, don't have jobs, right? There's an issue of, you know, so even corruption, corruption exists here. Trump is not better than an average African leader. So I'm not trying to be defensive on behalf of Africa, but okay. I'm saying no, no, no. But, but, but what you're saying is exactly what, what I'm saying, saying. Forgive me. What, what you're saying is what I'm saying too. Like even, mm -hmm. even people who are educated don't have jobs. Therefore, they're also hungry. The hunger is also a major factor because yes, you can yes, corrupt right. very yes. easily. You can corrupt yes. people very easily yes. because they're yes. hungry. So how do you human capital on, uh, on mm -hmm. How do you yes, corrupt? Yes. How do you? How do you? Uh, overcome all these enormous issues. We can even forget about uh, social responsibility, of course, when you have hunger to deal with. When I say hunger, I mean someone who feels insecure about their immediate future of the, themselves yes. and their family. How do you, how do you deal with, uh, with these gigantic mm. hurdles and build yeah. an economy uh, which uh, will uh, uh, compete eventually and, and call itself a developed economy? Uh, that's what the I'm diaspora's saying, like... role, the African diaspora role is very, very critical. And that's what we, one of the things we're looking at. 
the, I mentioned to you earlier, the cheetah generation. There are a lot of very, like, like I was you know, clarifying the basic education issue, the vocational training and all. Africa has a lot of talent, a lot of smart people right there from East, West, North Africa, as we both agree. But of course, on the utilization of scale, there's phantom aid where aid goes. And then most of the, even Iraq, not just Africa alone, most of the resources when Iraq was being reconstructed, most of the money that's given comes back in information, in, in uh, goods and services that are being hired over here. So we have to look at that aspect of things, but most fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, 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 entrepreneurship. Very, very important. Very, very important. Engaging the social networks in, you know, empathy, you know, or sympathy, whatever you want to call it, right? Making sure that you, you have microfinancing within villages, communities, you know, getting them organized locally to, you know, sort of form their own, uh, you know, uh, small enterprises. We did that. We've been doing that, you know, even when I worked at the World Bank, community-based participation, you know, I don't want to get into that. If you look at my, my, uh, my feature, the featured aspect of my LinkedIn and go straight to the first one, I will tell you my defining moment, what brought me here from when I was at the World Bank with the women I was trying to help in a village. You see my photo. I was, I don't even know, I was so pretty young in that photo. I was with the villagers teaching them in terms of commercial aspect, you know, using water and how they could trade. You know, they were doing small scale trading, you know, mm -hmm. and of course suggested to the local governments that they could use Sunday, who was the, the guy who was the bicycle repairer to repair the pumps. You know, it's about them self-help initiatives. You know, when people get desperate, yeah. You know, they can do use desperate means to achieve good stuff. Yeah. It's about empowering people because education is not a, you know, their doctors, lawyers walk in the streets. They don't have jobs. Not everybody has to go to college. Okay. You skills, vocational training, you know, little, little bits, information. People just need information. It's also about IP. What, so that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's small, and I know I get what you're saying that Africa can't afford to just be walking. It's a desperate situation in terms of development, you know. But the fact that so many people who have, you know, degrees or whatever it is, they are there, you know, and it's not a matter of not, they don't have jobs, and it's not a matter of, oh, they're stupid people. No, it has nothing to do with it. it's the structures. It's in, and it's not blaming the government because who's the government? The government are the people. Okay, but it's a multifaceted ancestral kind of relationship, which I mentioned. In fact, Nigeria, if you tell them stomach infrastructure, everybody laughs because they say, yeah, we know what that is all about. That infiltrates the democratic process. You know, poverty, you know, you, when you tell a poor man, oh, think this, think that. No, no, they don't, they're, they're thinking where they're going to eat. You know, okay. even if he's but an educator, so if he doesn't have a job. So I'm, yes, If I may interrupt you, if I may interrupt you, thank you. No, but I feel that, Absolutely agree with you. And I feel that you agree with me. That's what it, that's what it sounds like. And uh, uh, what you're describing is actually a situation where there's this multifaceted, super complex problem of uh, basically uh, an environment defined by corruption and lack of resources and hunger. Uh, which, uh, and, and the solution to that that you're posting is uh, entrepreneurship, as you call it, but unstructured entrepreneurship, a type of entrepreneurship which is based on, okay, you do whatever you, you know, whatever you can to survive, 
uh, and let's just, and maybe someone will help you improve it a little bit. And that's pretty much it. Is this really, I mean, but we're talking- Not unstructured, here. not unstructured. I think people can have structured, which is what we do. We try to encourage them or incentivize them to formalize, you know, but okay. if, if you're in a setting where you say you're, you know, you're an in the informal sector and that's what works for you in the short term, that's fine. But what we do, that's why we exist. I'm a lawyer, so I wouldn't be proposing an unstructured, you know, uh, entrepreneurship. Right, but if that, but I can't force them to be formalized if they don't want to. But what we do is we offer them the option, right? By unstructured, I mean I'm looking at the macro uh, view of the whole thing, meaning unstructured in terms of the effect that the entrepreneurial venture may have on the economy as a as a as a whole, and as part of a larger ecosystem, uh, the the effect that that ecosystem will have as a whole, and it feels that. Right now, the, the effort is pretty sporadic and it's not as concentrated, it's not as clearly defined, like in the way that, for example, a cluster uh, uh, that's focused on a specific set of industries has a structure, for example, I mean, it's a super developed uh, cluster, but we're talking, let's say, Silicon Valley, you have a very specific structure that has to do with VCs, it has to do with certain industries, it has to do with uh, industry that will support smaller industries, small industry that, that feeds these industries, you have universities, you have all that stuff. In the case of uh, most African nations, I believe, uh, the way at least you're describing, it's uh, that, there is that there's a lack of uh, that fundamental structure. And oh, no, that, no. Uh, oh, Am I wrong? No, I, I don't want to, uh, you to misinterpret what I'm driving at. They, okay. they, do, they have a formal structure. There are people who have, you know, formal structures. There are, in fact, there's also the trade-free zones in most of Africa right now that are helping to carve out, to encourage entrepreneurship, right? So yes, I mentioned that we have informal sector. Okay, it comprises 60 SMEs, right? But that doesn't mean that there are not many we have, uh, you know, uh, Ian Ola, who's in the tech industry. Uh, one of my uh, clients, Alexander, has formed, you know, he also is in the tech industry. He's, um, you know, high tech. We have, uh, you know, quite a lot, a lot of them, you know. In fact, Ian Ola has merged with um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. He has some joint ventures with Mark Zuckerberg. So, you know, Mark, you know, so Mark Zuckerberg visited Nigeria, I believe, a while ago. So the high tech, Nigeria has very so this is the thing if you want to leave with something useful that i've come up with for this meeting we've had mm -hmm. africa is like oh geez how do i want to put it it's it's like a forest with mm -hmm. all kinds of diamonds and jewels and all kinds of mm -hmm. things both rocks and jewels in one location yeah so while progress is happening in terms of, in fact, if, if we have, we, we're producing cheetah generation of Africans who are at par with Mark Zuckerberg right now, right? I just mentioned, I moderated the Yinola Judith and um, Editi, a session at the World Bank, October 1st, 2019. So no, don't leave with thinking, no, 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 it's not doomsday. Africa is progressing, but in its own way, there's so many, when SARS happened in Nigeria, remember when SARS happened? I don't know if you're following. Remember sure. the SARS of course. thing? Of course. You know, the police were beating up 
Nigerians who had dreadlocks, you know, this cheetah generation, like very wealthy looking, well, very wealthy, they're high tech young youth who are very good with AI, mm -hmm. very wealthy, but they, they drive nice cars, but police think they're drug addicts because they don't look the, you know, they dress, when I had um, my meeting, um, you know, Yinola is not with drugs, dreads, dreadlocks, I said drugs. He doesn't yeah. wear dreadlocks, but he had sweats on. But that guy is a multi, multi-millionaire. Mm -hmm. At my meeting at the World Bank that I moderated, we took a photo together, which I posted. If you go on my featured section, you see I had a photo with them. Yep. They don't dress the parts. These are like how Mark Zuckerberg would dress. He doesn't, yeah. they, they don't have to tout it. So we have that. That's why they're calling us, for, they're calling it fourth industrial revolution. And how does Africa capitalize on that? AI is yeah. one of them. I think I didn't mention it earlier. I was telling you about energy, but definitely AI. And the thing with AI is you don't need a lot of labor. These are the opportunist clients or whatever, that realm of high-tech renewable energy. They exist too, but the biggest one for Africa, as we're talking about, is the informal sector and survivalists because you want to bring everybody along with you, right? Not to sound like you're a communist where everybody, you know, when you start saying everybody has to be well off, they then think you're being a communist. No, no, it's social entrepreneurship. You want people, you know, you have to have somewhat of a heart to want to have at least people brought up along, they don't have to be, not everybody has to be equally a millionaire, but at least people have to have a certain standard of living. Didn't they say $1.50 a day or $1.90 a day is the gold standard, bearing in mind the, you know, the, the you know, the, uh, what do you call it, the differences in currency or inflation rates and currency convertibility issues and stuff like that, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, don't get me wrong. Africa is definitely moving. And it's not only in Nigeria, South Africa, Rwanda. Rwanda just set up a fourth industrial uh, revolution um, hub. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing that uh, Kigami just set up now. And then Nigeria is moving ahead. So yeah, there's stuff going on. The thing is that it's, uh, I call it so many cooks spoil and spice the broth of Africa. Hmm. There's a lot of movements going on. So it's confusing. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. That's why the message is so, there's so many messages. So it depends on what angle you take. You understand? Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a lot going on. Definitely a lot, especially even on the AI side. A lot of wizards, AI wizards in Africa, not just Nigeria, all over. Africa. So it depends on the sector too, right? But there, but we still have that challenge of those who are not yet there. Like I mentioned to you, we discussed earlier, the informal sector, the female-owned traders that need to come, especially the survivalist ones, right? But, you know, there's progress. Yeah.